News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We are going to talk more about what's happening in politics right here in Canada, but some big news coming out of the United States as well with the Trump campaign announcing a long list of speakers for the upcoming Republican convention. Let's check in with Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, good morning to you. Good morning. Happy Monday. Happy Monday to you as well. Quite the list of speakers. Yeah, look, this is a big list of speakers that they kind of left until the last minute before they unveiled who they were. Uh, notably here, a uh, number of the speakers have the last name Trump. A lot of them are current or active uh, administration officials, which is ruffling some feathers as to whether that violates any kind of uh, uh, um, uh, violation with the Hatch Act. Uh, but realistically, this group of speakers are simply uh, people who are, you know, Trump supporters, essentially, inside the government uh, and are really trying to push the Trump administration's messaging. Any surprises on the list? Like you said, it's a lot of family members uh, and and well-known names, but are there any standout surprises to you? I mean, look, if we're talking about surprises, the fact that some of the uh, everyday American citizens that are going to be speaking at the event this week include uh, the St. Louis couple who was known uh, for, you know, brandishing uh, firearms on their driveway as Black Lives Matter protesters were walking by. So that kind of gives you an idea as to what the undertone messaging is going to be from uh, this, you know, law and order president uh, as he is geared up to speak realistically every single day uh, of this event up until Thursday when he accepts the nomination. Uh, And Nicholas Sandman which people probably, if you just heard that name, you might not make the connection, but he was the the Covington Catholic High School student who made a lot of headlines. Uh, I think it was a couple years ago now. Uh, Any idea? He's on the list. What is he going to be talking about? Well, we don't know exactly what he's going to be talking about. We know that he's a supporter of the president. He was standing uh, during that confrontation with an Indigenous leader on the National Mall wearing a Make America Great Again hat. And, you know, the situation was spun uh, slightly out of control by the media. He has settled a number of lies lawsuits with the media. So this is just the president trying to inflate a situation. Uh, But it goes to kind of speak to the tone of what this convention is going to be, where it's going to be all about divisive politics, not really uniting the party and essentially trying to take that unification message to bring it on a broad uh, scale to unite the country. Uh, Kellyanne Conway, which is a well-known name affiliated with the president, I I think scheduled to speak Wednesday. But now we've also learned that she's going to be exiting that role. Is that strange timing? Uh, look, she, it, it's, it's personal matters with her family. Uh, her husband and her obviously have very differing views. He leads the Lincoln Project, which, which is outspeaking Republicans uh, against the president. She's obviously been with the president since he was a candidate back in 2015, but she's now putting her personal situation at home with her children over her job. Uh, this is going to be a loss for the Trump administration. She has been uh, one of the most vocal mouthpieces for the administration since it began. She's a close confidant and counselor to the president, so it is a loss in that sense. Uh, we'll have to see what the president says or how, uh, you know, Kellyanne potentially carries on any kind of voice outside of the administration once she leaves in about a month. And one of the other speakers as well, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, uh, going to be doing this from Israel, uh, which I mean, everything's different given COVID-19 and, and how things are being done. But 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 is that strange to have him do that while he's on while he's uh, in, in a foreign place? 
Yeah, I mean, look, having the virtual setup, we saw that with the Democrats. The, the, the more important here I- thing here is that Mike Pompeo was the Secretary of State in the administration, but he is the country's top diplomat. And that's where those Hatch Act violations uh, may come in play, because you aren't allowed to be an active member of an administration taking part in politics. But notably, your top diplomat is now taking part in partisan politics for one party. So that's where these questions are starting to raise as to who actually potentially could be in any kind of violation. You know, there are, are vocal groups that have been speaking out against this. But at the end of the day, the president has tapped Mike Pompeo and he's going to do it from Israel, an area of the of the world uh, that the administration is marking a victory here and trying to get peace in the Middle East. Uh, if anything comes of the violations, do you think it would happen? The timeline seems pretty tight. Could things change before the the times that they are scheduled to speak? Likely not. These people are likely set in stone. And it's worth pointing out here that several, you know, dozens of members of the Trump administration, including Kellyanne Conway, have been found in violation of Hatch Act uh, uh, regulations for the last four years. Realistically, all it usually does is impose a fine and kind of a scolding to say you can't do this. It doesn't really carry any kind of meaty weight to it. But at the end of the day, it does set a precedent going forward that the president is using uh, people who should be in a bipartisan position or at least working for the betterment of the country as a whole for his own sole purpose. All right, Reggie, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi this week. Well, nothing new here. Small businesses still reeling in many cases because of COVID-19. Even if they've reopened in many situations, they've been at small, uh, sh- smaller capacity. The customers aren't back to what they were pre-COVID-19. And the federal government is now conducting virtual consultations in BC with small business owners. That's happening today as they continue struggling with the pandemic. So what exactly is the government helping with and offering up to small business owners? Well, for more on that, we are joined by the Federal Minister of Small Business, Export Promotions and International Trade, Mary Ng. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi there, Jill. It's terrific uh, to be in British Columbia. I am looking forward to uh, doing my virtual visit in the Lower Mainland today. Uh, What does that actually mean? What will you be doing? Well, I'm going to be meeting with uh, a number of businesses. Uh, uh, I started the virtual tour a couple of weeks ago and started uh, on the other coast uh, in in the Atlantic region. And today I'm going to be meeting with a number of businesses. I will also be meeting with um, uh, businesses through the Tri-Cities Chamber of Commerce and really doing what we have always done throughout this pandemic, which is listening to businesses, understanding their challenges, making sure that the the supports that we have introduced, put in place, continue to work and to adjust as we need to adjust. So I have, um, uh, my team and I have made it a point to make sure that we stay very connected. But today, it will be uh, visiting NZ Technologies or 1Qbit, so actual companies that are Vancouver-based, where I will have an opportunity to listen to them, the work that they have done throughout uh, COVID-19, and how, for example, we might be able to uh, do more to help businesses in the recovery, and recovery through trade, which means accessing those customers in the international marketplace, to which some of our incredible companies, particularly in British Columbia, uh, would uh, you know, can absolutely destine and grow into, and uh, just trying to understand how best we can support them. And are you going to be talking them to them as well about the supports when you mentioned the federal government supports on whether or not they have employees who are on CERB or if they used the wage subsidy, what worked and what didn't work? 
Absolutely. I mean, in all of these conversations, um, business owners and entrepreneurs, it's a two-way dialogue. So I'm looking forward to the conversation with the Tri-Cities Chamber because this is where businesses and I get to interact. We get to talk about uh, the programs that have already gone out and how it has, uh, you know, how it has worked. It's uh, on the one hand, I've been hearing some incredible examples of businesses that have been able to pivot during this time. They've been used, using some of that SIBA loan to be able to go digital, for example, or to create an online ordering system um, and just to pivot their business, but also just how to, you know, how they've been able to use the wage subsidy to bring people back to work, despite the fact that their revenues are not necessarily at the, you know, at the pre-COVID rate and that there's going to be some time before that will happen. So how these programs are interacting with each other and, uh, and really, um, it is a dialogue and it is very, very much a listening, uh, exercise. It, it always has to be during, uh, it, it always is. And during, uh, and during the pandemic, this is what has helped the federal government create and adjust the supports needed for Canadians. Right. And listening is always great and appreciated, but listening doesn't help a business that hasn't seen any of its business come back, whether it's in tourism or other parts of the economy that haven't reopened. So what are you going to be doing for those businesses? You're absolutely right. Uh, action is what is needed. And uh, so, in a, you know, to follow up with that, uh, that listening and with respect to tourism and hospitality, we know how hard hit it is for those businesses in particular. And I pay particular attention to our Main Street businesses. I mean, this is what makes up all of our incredibly vibrant communities, and we need them to stay strong. We need to help them through this so that they can bridge to beyond COVID-19. And uh, here, my colleague, Minister Jolie, I mean, in particular, um, has made some recent investments, like to uh, Vancouver Island Tourism, about a million dollars there, uh, also for Indigenous tourism businesses, but also through the regional uh, the Regional Relief and Recovery Fund. This is to help businesses that are those small tourism and hospitality businesses that may not qualify for the other supports that we have, like the SIBA or the wage subsidy. But these are for smaller businesses, and uh, it was a billion-dollar investment, and 300 of that is going into businesses in Western Canada. So it is. Uh, so the listening is followed up by investments, and then it's iterative. We continue to listen because we have to. We have to do this together as Team Canada get to keep working through this pandemic and to get through it. And, and with the, you talked about tourism, and certainly that's one sector that has been hard hit. So with, with businesses like that, though, even if they are, are able to get the wage subsidy, it's kind of counterintuitive to bring employees back, to be paying employees if there aren't customers, if there aren't revenues coming in. So how do you deal with that? Well, I've had lots of examples across the country, and particularly when, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of companies, even at the height of uh, businesses being closed down, that businesses have kept together with their employees. They've used the wage subsidy, and um, and businesses and their employees have really worked together. And even when the revenues may not be there, even when the customers may not be there, we know that a business is strong when the business is stays connected with their employees and vice versa. I've seen some incredible ideas come out because of that. So the pivoting that has taken place, the brainstorming that takes place in the organization, in that little business on how to, how to, you know, how to create a new revenue stream. How might we do something differently? I mean, when I look at a number of companies that, uh, that have pivoted 
to, um, you know, clothing companies that have, uh, because the retail sales uh, aren't there, have uh, pivoted to making masks, as an example, or companies that have, uh, that distilleries that have pivoted to providing hand sanitizers. So, I mean, those are just two examples, and there are really countless. And I've been working with uh, Shopify, as an example, to help increase that capacity and supporting businesses who want to and who need to go digital, again, as a way of being able to find additional revenue lines that adapt to what is COVID-19. But even, uh, you know, and so I, that, that idea of keeping the employee and the employer together is very critical because it actually puts you in a stronger position in this recovery, even if the recovery is slow, which it is for many businesses. And we intend to keep supporting those businesses, all businesses, uh, throughout this. All right, uh, Minister, we'll leave it there for today. We're out of time, but thanks so much for joining us uh, and good luck in your meetings today. Thank you so very much, Jill. Always great to talk to you. This is Mornings with Simi. We could be into an election campaign as soon as this fall. But as more than 260,000 passionate Conservatives have already shown in this record-breaking leadership amidst a pandemic, the Conservative Party will be ready for the next election. That is the new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Aaron O'Toole. We also caught up with Global News National Political Correspondent Abigail Beeman for more on what happens now. Abigail is on the line with me. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Long night for everybody involved. We now do know who the new leader of the Conservative uh, Party is, Aaron O'Toole, finally declaring uh, that he is the winner. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how things unfolded and the drama that we saw yesterday. Drama is a very good word. So there was a huge delay, hours and hours and hours, literally pushed it into the next day, uh, on Eastern time anyway, uh, at the, the Conservative event. And what it came down to was an issue with the machine that cuts open the ballot envelope. So uh, an envelope cutter, as one can imagine, its job is to cut open envelopes. It was also slicing into the ballots in some cases. Now, we still don't know how many ballots were affected. We were just told several thousand. There was record turn turnout for this uh, vote with more than 174,000 people casting a ballot and a few thousand or several thousand or let's wait until we have a final number there but some of those ballots uh, were affected what 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 they needed to do was every time a ballot was damaged get a clean ballot remark that ballot with the original ballot information then feed it into the machine so this was accounting for some of the delays. After a while, we just got very little information as to what was taking so long, especially in between the ballots once they had the results. Uh, so it meant for a very, very long night uh, and, and campaign teams that were waiting around much longer than they expected with their families in separate watch rooms um, at a hotel that wasn't even in the same building as the convention center because of COVID-19. So for a number of reasons, this was a much different uh, race. And we did get a winner, as mentioned, and like you said, a lot of drama leading up to that. We've heard from Aaron O'Toole. He he gave his victory speech, his acceptance speech. What do you think this means, this new leader for the Conservative Party? 
It, it means a, a few things. It's it's very interesting to note that this would be the first time that the party has a leader who isn't from Western Canada, uh, and there are different opinions about whether that's a good or, or a bad thing. But what the Conservatives know is that they need to expand their, their base if they want to win in the next election. They are historically very strong uh, in, in the West, but Aaron O'Toole comes from a greater Toronto area riding, uh, and the suburban area and, of course, urban areas as well are where the Conservatives need to pick up support. So some people very firmly believe that that will help uh, in areas where they need it. Uh, Quebec was also very interesting last night. We learned earlier in, in the day that uh, Conservatives tripled their membership numbers in Quebec, and then we learned uh, late into the night that uh, it was really Aaron O'Toole who sweeps at or seem to uh, to make that happen. Um, politically, where he stands, it, it's interesting because of the way the ranked ballot system works. Uh, for those who are, are not familiar, voters can, can rank all, up to all four candidates if they choose. Uh, and so when if there's not a clear majority on the first ballot, which is exactly what happened last night, you then move on to the second and third choices, which is why those second and third choices become so important. Uh, and Aaron O'Toole was propelled to victory uh, in part due to support from Derek Sloan and Leslie Lewis, uh, candidates three and four, uh, or four and three in the order that I just mentioned them. Uh, and those individuals are both social conservatives. So a long way around of saying that uh, Aaron O'Toole did get support from uh, the further right part of uh, the conservative base, but he really was clear in his message about unity, bringing everybody together, uh, and, and showing uh, people across the country is his goal that there is a place for everybody in the conservative party. I did find it interesting the way that that broke down with the ballots and, and who got support from where because if you looked at the, the platforms, if you look at the people as individuals, I mean Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole I think have more in common. Uh, Peter McKay as you know was kind of, uh, people made the presumption that he was the front runner and thought that he was going to win. Yes. Some might have said that was a bit of an upset uh, but I thought it was interesting exactly that how Aaron O'Toole kind of did play to that, that true blue uh, crowd, the true blue conservatives. Well, right. There were a lot of, uh, you know, tongue-in-cheek jokes about how just how similar McKay and O'Toole were. They're both sons of uh, well-known politicians. Uh, they're both former Harper cabinet ministers. Uh, they both studied law at Dalhousie University. You know, the, there's a there's there's a number of similarities. Uh, so it, it was interesting. I will I will say that many people were calling for it to be a tight race, uh, and the O'Toole camp was very confident heading into uh, last night. But like you said. Uh, uh, McKay was the perceived front runner, and this was certainly a big upset for him. What will be O'Toole's first job, do you think? From from what I'm hearing uh, within the party, most people are on the same page that the first job is to make sure you unite the party from within. And there was really a big split in terms of the sitting caucus uh, of Conservative MPs in terms of who they supported, who they endorsed in this race. So the Conservatives really need to make sure that there's no rifts uh, within their own party so that they can focus on their real task, which is uh, their goal of bringing down the Liberal government. But uh, it's harder to do that when uh, people are paying attention 
attention to, you know, internal party rifts. Andrew Scheer uh, spoke to that uh, in his uh, in his speech, uh, as well as Aaron O'Toole talking about party party unity. So that's high on the agenda. Uh, in some ways, it's, it's easier for the Conservative Party that uh, Aaron O'Toole is the winner just in terms of he's one of two candidates who currently has a seat in the House of Commons. You know, if it had been Peter McKay, there would have had to be some figuring out uh, about that aspect. So he's already there. He, he can hit the ground running in that sense when the House resumes in a month. And he has a month to figure out uh, the next step. And a huge question for the Conservatives is, do they want to push for an election in the fall? And it's really a question of whether Canadians want to go to the polls uh, in this uh, pandemic with the backdrop of the pandemic. So lots on his plate for sure. All right. So busy, busy night. And I know not a lot, not a lot of sleep for a lot of people. Abigail Beeman, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. O'Toole did get support from uh, the further right part of uh, the Conservative base, but he really was clear in his message about unity, bringing everybody together uh, and and showing uh, people across the country is his goal that there is a place for everybody in the Conservative Party. All right, that was Abigail Beeman, Global News political reporter, talking about Aaron O'Toole, the new leader of the federal Conservative Party. We are joined now by Conservative commentator Elise Mills for her thoughts on how things unfolded last night. Elise, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. What a night and a morning. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> one way of putting it, yes. <laughs> uh, I know a, a lot of people did not get a lot of sleep watching, waiting for the results, uh, the speeches. So what do you think about Aaron O'Toole being the new leader? You know what? I thought last night was just, it, once we got over the hurdle of the six-hour wait, which was a great time to take a nap. That was when you took the nap. I, I, I have to say that just there were a couple of things that stood out for me. Number one, I have to acknowledge Leslie Lewis. I mean, a round of applause for her. Um, that was unbelievable what she did in British Columbia, Saskatchewan, um, even in Alberta. I mean, and the fact that she raised approximately $2 million in the last couple of weeks of the campaign just speaks volumes to, I think people were drawn to her. I know she was identified as a social conservative, but I don't think she's as socially conservative as she may have played in the beginning of the campaign. And you sort of saw her push, kind of step back from that line, and she really opened up. I mean, I heard her on this station, and I was absolutely impressed. And I think it says so much about the party, about how many times people voted for her, the type of support she got, people walked, didn't just talk. They walked their walk with their wallet. And I thought that was incredible, especially during a pandemic. But a big shout out to O'Toole's campaign today and my friends over there because they demonstrated a ground game in unfamiliar territory during a pandemic that I have never seen before. And I have to say that Aaron's speech last night, I was waiting with bated breath. I was holding on because I had been talking about this morning in America moment that my type of conservative really needs to hear. We saw it tenfold last night. I thought it was one of the best speeches I've seen by a conservative MP slash leader uh, in a very long time, Jill. I just want to circle back to Leslie Lewis because we haven't been talking a lot about her this morning. So I'm glad that, that you brought that up because do you think, uh, I, and I think most, a lot of people would agree, uh, pleasantly surprised by Ooh. the support, by the financial, the, by the fundraising, uh, by the showing in the vote yesterday. Uh, she's not an MP. She's not a politician. Do you think this opens the door to her being a future MP? 
Yeah, I well, I think what's happening this morning, so let's just talk about what ha- has been happening since about 2 o'clock BC time. The transition to the leader's office is happening. It's a very different transition than um, Andrew Shearer had with Ronna Ambrose. It's not as chaotic. It's a very formulated plan. And uh, Aaron O'Toole, being a former military guy, is running this as to be expected, very tight ship. Um, and I think that uh, my understanding of people I've spoken to in the wee hours of this morning is that Leslie Lewis uh, is going to play a starring role in a lot of what you'll see come from the Conservative Party in the next uh, few months. I think you'll see her take a prominent role, not just as she seeks her own seat, but with the actual campaign itself, whenever that's coming. And I will say there are, I think that this leader is going to do everything he can not to get us to a fall election, even though the party is probably in the best uh, position it's been in a very long time. We've expanded the membership in Quebec uh, by 25%, which is almost unheard of in recent years. Um, uh, you know, the membership, even in Western Canada, which was sort of flailing just a little bit, uh, seems to have solidified again. Uh, our coffers are full. Um, and now what we need to do is put a strategy together. But I, it's my understanding that uh, Mr. O'Toole is going to sort of keep his powder dry. And I think what we can look to is possibly a spring election. Um, but right now, I think uh, the, the fate of what's going to happen to Mr. Trudeau is really at the hands of the NDP and the bloc. But let's Lynn Lewis will definitely play a big part in that. And what do you see as far as the the Conservative Party and the messaging? Because it is interesting how you said Leslyn Lewis maybe isn't as socially conservative as she started out to being. Aaron O'Toole maybe isn't as is was perhaps more progressive than he played in this campaign. Mm-hmm. What does the future look like? Well, it's, it, I think both of them were very smart. Um, they, they played by the Harper playbook, which I always felt very comfortable working in, as you know, Jill, which was, you can have your ideas, but uh, this is what my agenda is as the leader of the party, as the prime minister, as the big guy. Um, and I think that's the, 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 the role that Aaron O'Toole wants to play as well, which is, I respect your beliefs. Um, but I think there's also a misunderstanding by a lot of media what a social conservative is it's not just one person it's not this it's the extremists of the party are one thing but there are a lot of people whether it's from the jewish community catholics christians uh muslims there are people in our party that consider themselves to be devoutly devoutly religious but would never impose their beliefs they do also identify as social conservatives and they may not support abortion in their home but their job their their idea is not to paint the sky in their own image it's to unify the conservative movement to unify the country. And I think that Mr. O'Toole had really understood that. I think Leslin, as she progressed in her campaign, began to understand that in a more fulsome way. Uh, I think she began to understand that um, what's, what's socially conservative in some regions is not socially conservative in other regions, uh, that we're not monolithic, or that social conservatives themselves are not monolithic. Um, and I think that she really put a fine point on that in the end, and I think that they'll both work together. Um, she brings something to Aaron O'Toole that he didn't have, which is, I think, uh, a very strong support base from women, from minorities. Uh, I think youth were inspired by her. There, I knew a lot of people, Jill, uh, and it's interesting, <laughs> white guys from the 25 to 49 that put her down as their number one. But they were Vancouver lawyers, doctors, Toronto, Vancouver lawyers, doctors. And I asked them about the social conservative, and they said, I just love how fresh 
she is. I love the takes that she has. I love how uh, ambitious she is. I love her view of the country. I, I haven't looked at that side so much. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think we saw it in her numbers uh, last night, especially in British Columbia. I mean, who knew she'd come in with those numbers that she did last night? Yeah. And, and finally, why do you think the, the membership chose Aaron O'Toole rather than Peter McKay? I think Peter McKay and, you know, it's a very difficult conversation to have because I don't think conservatives want to pile on other conservatives. But, you know, it was interesting to me. I think it said a lot that Jason Kenney and Stephen Harper and other, well, obviously with Mr. Harper being former prime minister, but other high profile, uh, very successful conservative cabinet ministers uh, didn't either come out for McKay or completely endorsed Mr. O'Toole. And I, it is my understanding that it was because of their relationship with him in cabinet in the sense of not that it was there, there was an animosity, but they weren't sure that he had the grit to carry the entire country forward. Yes, he could probably do well in Atlanta, Canada. Uh, but they, there was this feeling that he was—he had been out of the mix for a period of time, uh, that he was a bit liberal light, um, and that for the party to truly be a conservative party and do the work that we should have done after 2015, and you know this, Jill, on the policy floor, which is really, really where we need to focus right now. Um, and as Aaron O'Toole said, we need to do a lot more proposing to Canadians versus just opposing Trudeau, and that it couldn't be truer uh, today. Um, um, and I think Mr. McKay didn't have a, a strong grasp on the future of the party. And it's not necessarily determinant of your determinant of your age or your gender, but how a lot of us conservatives have evolved on key issues um, that we may not have been supportive of in 2011. All right, uh, Elise, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for taking the time with us. Thanks so much for having me today, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as you know, the Canada Emergency Revenue Benefit, or what has commonly become known as the CERB, was a crucial measure to help more than a million Canadians who found themselves out of work when the COVID-19 pandemic started. We know it has been extended for into September and will then transition to EI, but it has raised some concerns about the EI program and people who won't qualify. Well, Federal Employment Minister Carla Qualtro joins me now to talk a bit more about this. Minister Qualtro, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Uh, talk a bit, if you can, about the changes that were made, because there, there have been people saying, yes, absolutely, we needed these changes to EI to make sure people were helped and not left once CERB stops, but some saying, well, it actually goes too far as well. Can you talk a bit about the changes? Well, I sure can. So, you know, taking a step back, in March, we realized very quickly two things. Um, one, that the, all the people we wanted to help, so the number of workers we wanted to help, we couldn't do that through EI because not every, all workers are in the EI system. And two, the EI system itself couldn't handle all the, the, the millions of, of um, applications that were going to come in. So that, that's really what prompted us to move to the CERB. We've now spent the time since March 15th getting the system itself ready. I have 100% confidence that it is now able to take in people quickly without benefit disruption. It's not going to take months to process all these applications. So that's really good news for the EI system itself. But we also know that because people haven't been working, they haven't been accumulating enough hours to even qualify to get back into the EI system. So we made some fundamental changes to the system to make it easier to get people in, because I actually believe this is the best way to help people get back to work. 
um, like setting a uniform unemployment rate, like giving people a, um, a credit of insurable hours. So now people don't have to have as many insurable hours to get into the EI system. And for people who, despite all of this, aren't going to get into the system, we've created these parallel, what we're calling recovery benefits. Again, we're out of the emergency phase into the recovery phase to make sure that everybody is covered or as many people as possible are covered. What do you say to the concerns, though, about, and again, people understanding that, yes, if you're suddenly cut off CERB and you don't have your job back, you would need some kind of help. But with the changes, and a lot of these being raised by the CFIB, saying if you work three hours a week or three and a half weeks of full-time work over the past year, you now qualify for $10,000 in special EI benefits. You qualify for way more than you would make if you went back to work. Well, a couple of things. First of all, I'm very sensitive to those concerns. Um, but second of all, the reality is, is, you know, there just aren't the jobs out there that there were. There's a lot of people who want to work and can't find work. Getting people into the EI system allows us to incentivize work in a more productive way. So you can work well on EI and we're going to claw back some of that income. We've got training opportunities you can work share. None of that was available for, through SERPs. We want to get people into this system so they can, so we can eliminate some of the, the, the disincentives that were either perceived or criticized through the SERB. Um, but the reality is, is there, you know, as much as we see we're hopeful and labor market trends are positive, there's a lot of people who are off work and still need this support. And quite frankly, the uncertainty of the fall. So, you know, the idea of schools not being open or preschool not available or elder care not available means that there are other people who just can't go back to work yet because they have caregiving responsibilities. Uh, Do you see these changes as being permanent? You know, we've put them in place for a year, and now we're, we're having the really important conversation of what comes next. So, you know, again, as I said, this has really laid to bear all the... The, the gaps and the complications and complexities and perhaps the reality that the EI system hasn't kept up with the way we work in Canada. And now we, we're going to take the time to modernize EI. Some of these things might stay. We might have other things that happen instead. But, you know, I've been tasked by the Prime Minister of looking to reimagine EI and make sure that we support workers, we don't disincentivize work, we get people the support they need. It's a big task, but we've given ourselves a little bit of breathing room to do it. Uh, one of the things with EI, uh, though, has been that you pay into it, and you pay into it so if there comes a time that you need it, whether there's a yep. pandemic or not, you can you can apply and you can access it. Uh, these changes mean, and again, we know that, that people who are self-employed and entrepreneurs and gig economy workers also need help. Uh, would that be a permanent change, though? Because we're talking about people who haven't paid into the system now getting those benefits. And we completely, again, super sensitive to the fairness argument around that, which is why we made sure that anybody on EI will not be worse off than somebody who hasn't paid into the system. Somebody on EI can access a minimum of 26 weeks, whereas if you're on the recovery benefit, 26 weeks is your maximum. We've tried as much as possible to make sure there's equity and even more preferential treatment of EI-eligible Canadians, because as you've said, they've paid into this system. You know, 
decades ago, a decision was made to get the federal government out of the business of contributing to EI. So it's supported, as you said, by employers and employees. And, and you know, at the same time, we've added more social uh, welfare-type benefits into the program, maternity leave, parental leave. And so, you know, there's got to be a conversation of whether this is the right mix of insurance principles and social benefits or if we need to do something different and what, what the federal government needs to be a part of in all of this. Uh, we're talking a lot about CERB and this transition to, to these new programs and this different type of the EI system. Uh, does that mean that the wage subsidy plan didn't work? Again, a really important question, and I think there's going to be some, some serious postmortem. Listen, I think the first, the first challenge for us is the way we rolled these things out. So CERB came first, people got to know CERB, and then the wage subsidy happened, but people were already on CERB or already knew about CERB. Um, the wage subsidy has, has helped hundreds of thousands of businesses. Millions of Canadians are on it. We had hoped more would go on it, but the you know the business leaders are saying there's just so much uncertainty. You know we're not we're not used to the spirit of entrepreneurship doesn't really lend itself to having people on a payroll that aren't working, and so you know I think it's, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. It is working for people for whom it's working, um, but it hasn't it hasn't encompassed the number of of. Uh, businesses and employees that perhaps we had envisioned. Um, and that's another reason to get people off the messaging of CERB onto a message of recovery. On the new recovery benefits, you can earn, there's no income earning cliff like the $1,000. It's, you know, work as much as you can. We're going to claw it back after a certain point at tax time, but you'll always be better off working on both EI and the recovery benefit. All right, Minister, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there's still a lot of uncertainty on what things will look like next month. Here we are already at August 24th, kids going back to school on September 10th. And that means there will be programs taking place before school, after school, care centres. One of those programs, which has been wildly popular with kids, is the Boys and Girls Club. Well, what are they doing to make sure people are staying safe and staying in those cohorts and those learning groups when they are gathering in bigger groups? Well, Carolyn Tuckwell is the CEO of the Vancouver Chapel of the Boys and Girls Club and joins us now to talk a bit more about this. Carolyn, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, how have things been? Have you still been operating during the pandemic? Uh, well, we we closed all of our in-person operations uh, back in March, at the sort of middle of spring break. Uh, but for the summer, we did reopen and we have been uh, doing our summer day camps and um, and uh, happily seeing kids in in our programs, and that's been great. Uh, and and we're preparing to to have programs in our clubs and um, uh, for kids uh, after school as as kids go back. So, what will it look like, or what will the key differences be? Yeah, well, the key differences really have to do with numbers. Uh, keeping everyone safe means that uh, that we don't have the same big numbers of kids in our clubs as as we do in in what are now thought of as normal times, and uh, uh, and really working on being in bigger spaces and making sure we're supporting kids to still be able to be together and with their mentors and and uh, uh, and our staff in, in the clubs, but at a distance and. 
and uh, and with the right kinds of precautions in place, lots of reminders to wash their hands uh, and doing as much outdoors, of course, as, as we're able to. And is there a plan, I would imagine, if somebody comes down with COVID-19, whether it's a child, a family member, or, uh, or one of the instructors or one of the one of the leaders? Oh, absolutely. Yep. Uh, you know, we we always have the ability to be safe at the Boys and Girls Clubs. That's uh, always paramount. And so, um, absolutely, we we have all the precautions in place to hopefully avoid that. But um, we do have the ability to have um, any of our kids away from the other kids if they start to feel unwell until we can get them home to their parents. Uh, and of course, we have all the safety plans in place um, should should anyone uh, show symptoms and, and test positive. Thankfully, that's not been the case uh, so far, and, and we plan to keep it that way if, if we have anything to do about it. And what about wearing masks? I know there, there's a lot of, of discussion about wearing masks, especially for older kids. Are masks going to be part of any of the programs? We have masks available for all of the kids and all of our staff, uh, and certainly are, are, we're following exactly by uh, the rules of, of what the provincial health officers are recommending. Um, and, and I think most importantly, the, the rule will be that if, if physical distancing isn't possible, masks will be worn. Um, and, and of course, if, if, the, if the recommendations change from, from the provincial health officer, then, then we'll adapt, and and as I said, we are fully prepared. We've got um, a, a really great supply of masks. Um, some provided by Gap, in fact, which has been amazing, very generous, and uh, and we're ready to go. All right, uh, we'll leave it there for today, Carolyn. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. We have been talking a lot about the various federal benefit programs for people who have been negatively impacted because of COVID-19, whether it's their business shutting down or having the business operations severely curtailed because of the pandemic. Well, today, businesses in the fishing industry can start applying for almost half a billion dollars in federal aid. And Bernadette Jordan joins me on the line now, the Minister of the Department of Fisheries, uh, to talk more about who is eligible for this funding. Minister, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, So it is open today. So who can apply? So the programs that are opening today are the Fish Harvester Benefit and the Fish Harvester Grant. And these are eligible. The, the people eligible for these are your self-employed um, fishers as well as Indigenous fishers who hold communal commercial licenses. Um, those are the people who are going to benefit from these programs directly. And what will they actually be qualified to get? So there's two two funding streams under the same program. First of all, there's the first the the fish harvester grant, and that is eligible for basically your captains, the um, the people who are the uh, the self-employed fish harvester. They can receive up to ten thousand dollars in a grant based on um, their either projected earnings this year or their previous two seasons, whichever is higher. And so that's going to be very beneficial, particularly in British Columbia, where we know they've had a rough year, not only this year, but last year. So they can actually apply for the grant based on their 2018 earnings, um, which is going to give them some some much needed capital right now. Um, And then the fresh harvester benefit is not only available to the self-employed harvester, but also to anyone who may be a share crew member. 
So if you are on a fishing vessel right now and you are paid as part share instead of a wage, then you're also eligible for the fish harvester benefit. And that's uh, up to $10,164. So these are two programs that are available. They're opening up today, and it's a really quick turnaround time for them. We know that people have been waiting for these. Once they apply, they would be able to have money either in their bank account or a check in the mail to them within five days. And and so why is this needed in that wouldn't some, especially if they're being able to use the revenue or the work from 2018, wouldn't there be people in that group that would have qualified for EI and especially under the new EI programs? Absolutely. But the thing, the, the, the challenge with these, these grants are available or these grants and benefits are available because, um, Fishing enterprises are structured differently than many businesses. So they were not eligible to apply for the wage subsidy program or the emergency business account. This is actually something that was built and tailor-made specifically for the fishing sector because they were being, uh, they were not able to apply for any of the other grants because of the way they're structured. So we wanted to make sure that they were captured as well. It was extremely important to, to us to make sure that we have a strong commercial fishing sector Um, You know, I mean, as as coastal Canadians, it's something that's extremely critical to many of our communities. We wanted to make sure that they were they were able to get through this very tough season. Uh, The uh, the benefit is not available for people who are, say, um, individuals that have a fishing lodge. We know we've seen fishing lodges shut down uh, sports fishing enterprises, whether it's it's companies that take people out fishing. They've had no work at all this year. Why aren't they eligible for this? So this is particularly meant for commercial fishers, people who are, uh, you know, making their money based on their commercial fishing license. Um, that is the, 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 the group that I uh, reflect, I, I, I represent. Um, the other people may be eligible for the wage subsidy or the emergency benefit program or the emergency business account program. So that was why, like I said, that this is structured particularly for commercial harvesters because they are the ones who did not fit under the criteria for the other benefits. And so how do they go about applying for the grant or for the benefit? So there is a portal on the DFO website um, where they will go. It's it's open now and they can go in there and it's a very simple process. We basically need, uh, you know, their license number, the name, address, social insurance number, their bank account information to where the money is to go. And then we need either their projected income for, for this year or, or their previous season's earnings. And that will give us the ability to uh, make sure that they get the highest amount possible. And once that's all submitted, they'll get an immediate notification that it's been accepted and how much they'll be eligible for. And then that money will be there within five days. And, and not to, to assume the worst in people, but is it going to be something similar to CERB in that you're expecting people to be honest and apply for this and you'll get it out there as fast as you can, but there might be checks coming later or, I mean, checks in that making sure it was genuine? So because we're, you know, I mean, because we're asking people to base it on their, their, um, their, their perceived earnings this year in some cases, some of the things, there maybe have to be some adjustments once income tax time comes around. Uh, you know, I mean, we think that, you know, most Canadians are actually, you know, doing everything right to make sure that they're able to qualify for these things. And, and uh, we're, we're doing everything we can to make sure that we get it out the door to them. Uh, and you mentioned the, the total cost of this right off the top. But are you confident, though, that will be enough? Or do you have any idea how many uh, commercial fishers are going to be taking part in this? 
So this is um, based on 28,000 commercial harvesters licenses that we, we know that are out there. And of course, freshwater fisheries on, on the prairies are also available to uh, apply for these benefits. Um, but I think that, you know, with uh, with what we've been doing as a government, we've monitored all our programs as we roll them out, we adjust them if they need to be, you know, we've added things, we've uh, changed the way that they're, they're administered in a few cases. And we'll continue to monitor this to make sure that it's doing everything it needs to do. It's extremely important that people are able to continue to keep people on the payroll. It's important to be able to, you know, make sure that they still have an enterprise at the end of a very difficult year so that next year they can come back strong and we can continue to have those commercial fishers that are so desperately needed in our coastal communities. All right. Uh, Well, I'm sure many will be applying for that and hoping to get some of that benefit. We'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you. Bernadette Jordan is the Minister of the Department of Fisheries, uh, joining us on the line to talk more about that portal, which is opening today for those involved in the commercial fishing industry.